On behalf of Library Information Services, this is Bob Keebler, and joining us today is Jonathan Blockmacher to talk about the brand new proposed 2704 regulations. Welcome, Jonathan. Well, Bob, it's a delight for me to be here, a real honor to cover these proposed regulations, which to me, if they're enacted, if they're adopted by the Treasury, which probably will not be before the beginning of next year, will be the biggest change in estate tax planning in 25 years or more. Before we get into the details, Jonathan, what are these regulations trying to accomplish? Well, Bob, I think we need to look at this kind of from an historic perspective. Beginning in the 1970s, lawyers and accountants and other advisors began to counsel people on how they could reduce their estate and gift taxes, and eventually the generation skipping transfer tax. And no matter what you look at, almost all of the recommendations related to discounting the value of what would be subject to one of those taxes. And generally that occurred by changing the nature of what the individual owned in order to reduce its value. And a number of techniques developed. One of the most common ones was called a preferred stock freeze, although it could occur with respect to partnership interests as well. After losing a number of cases, the Treasury went to the Congress, and Congress passed what is now known as Chapter 14 of Subtitle B of the Internal Revenue Code. Those four sections, 2701 through Section 2704, basically take certain discounting techniques away. Probably the most prominent one that people have focused on is 2701, which doesn't allow a family to create an enterprise and give the common interest to the younger generation and the preferred interest to the senior generation because those interests that the senior generation would hold would have inherent discounts and valuation and would be frozen in value. They also did Section 2704, which everyone is familiar with because that's why we can do grantor-retained annuity trusts, but essentially when you're involved with family members, you can't do a grantor-retained income trust, which was the predecessor. 2703 deals with buy-sell agreements and similar options and restrictions, which basically will not be respected unless you meet a very, very high hurdle, including the ability to show that people in private contexts also adopted very similar, if not identical, provisions. 2704 has kind of been a sleeper section. It basically says that if you basically have a right to vote or right to liquidate in a closely held enterprise and it disappears when it's transferred, it's going to be valued as though it had not disappeared. That's 2704A. 2704B basically said in valuing interests, again, in family-controlled enterprises, that certain restrictions which would reduce the value of the interest transferred, whether it's during lifetime or at death, or from a generation-skipping trust, which is not exempt from that tax, would be uh, basically disregarded. The big part of 2704B is that it had to prevent the enterprise itself from liquidating. The IRS tried in cases, but it lost hands down to try to extend that to the individual holdings of individuals. However, Section 2704B4 authorized the Treasury explicitly to issue regulations which would 
basically cause certain other restrictions, not the ones mentioned in the statute on the ability of the enterprise itself to liquidate, also to be disregarded. We've anticipated those regulations under Section 2704 before for literally years. And rumors, of course, have flied for about the past, well, more than a year as to when those proposed regulations would come out. And this past Tuesday, they were issued. This is fascinating in that we have a lot of work to do, but what's the bottom line for most planners to understand? Are there things we can do in the short term? Well, well, Bob, let me give you a little bit of background on what they do. They are very complicated rules, and they change the regulations under Section 2704A, which is 25.2704-1, dealing with the loss of certain voting or liquidation rights, and those changes are significant. But the big deal of the regulations under Section 2704B4, which are now 25.2701-3, and essentially what they do is to say that discounts in valuation attributable to having a lack of control or a minority interest in a family-controlled enterprise will simply be disregarded. The consequences are very significant. Let me give you one that's going to really be shocking if you haven't read them. I own 60% of the stock in a closely held corporation. I give my granddaughter 15%. Now, that's a minority interest, obviously, and under you know years, decades, it would be valued with a minority discount. Indeed, that was conceded by the IRS, again, after a series of defeats, in Revenue Ruling 93-12, a critically important ruling. So I give my granddaughter, Evie, a 15% interest, 15% of the stock. She doesn't lose any voting rights. She doesn't lose any rights that she might have. Historically, that, of course, would be valued with a minority discount because she has no control. She can't demand to do anything. She can't demand to be liquidated out. Similarly, I'm now left with 40% of the stock. I had 55. I gave her 15. I have 40. I'm now in a minority position. And now I win when I die or I later transfer that interest, even at one time, there would be a minority discount. Essentially, what the 2704B4 regulations, this again is proposed reg 25.2704-3, they basically say we are going to deem every interest held by anyone in a closely held enterprise, whether it's a corporation, whether it's a partnership, whether it's an LLC, whether it's a disregarded entity or not, as though everybody had a right to put back his or her interest at a proportionate value of the entire enterprise. So if this corporation that I own 55% of the stock of and is worth, say, $10 million, it's an actual operating business. Maybe I own it with distant relatives or with strangers. Both the 15% I give to my granddaughter, Evie, and the 40% I retain will be valued on the basis that either she can demand 15% of the entire $10 million, even though in the real world she couldn't, and I could demand 40% of the entire enterprise, even though in the real world I couldn't. That's how far those go. Now, indeed, this applies, obviously, to things like family partnerships or family LLCs, which, of course, there's been tremendous developments in the law on, but it even applies to active, closely held businesses. 
So if the family has control and there are a number of changes in the meaning of control, you're going to be caught. Now let me mention something else, Bob, that's important to know. Suppose you form your enterprise under a state law where people don't have ever have these rights to demand to be bought out at a proportionate part of the enterprise. There is no so-called put right. And there are states, such as Nevada and Colorado, that have passed such laws. So if you form it under those state laws, you have no right to demand to be put back. It's just absolutely prohibited by the statute. The Treasury was extremely clever because they said, even if you're formed under a state law where you cannot, you're prohibited from having a put right, we are going to nonetheless deem you to have a put right if you could have formed that enterprise under another provision of that law. So if you go to Nevada and you use this special closely held business thing where you have no put right or you can't be bought out for at least 10 years, no matter what, it's just prohibited, they're going to deem that you could have created an under the standard limited partnership rules and where you could have been granted a put right. And I want to emphasize, Bob, it's not that you have the put right. It's not that you weren't prohibited the put right under the documents. If state law would permit under any of its statutes to grant owners the right to be bought out, that will be deemed that you have that right exercisable within six months. So it's exceptionally far-reaching and covers so much of the traditional planning that accountants and lawyers have done for their clients who hold closely held business interests. So is it fair to say that the, the whole paradigm has shifted and things we take for granted, like Revenue Ruling 93-12, what the court said in Kerr, and a whole litany of other basic principles they're, they're either gone or they've changed so much that we have to relearn them? But, well, Bob, I don't know if it's a matter of relearning them, but you can't just use those things for the benefit of your client where it's a family-controlled enterprise. And it's going to take effect if and when these regs become final. Now, let me mention that there are going to be practitioners and taxpayers who say these regs are just invalid. They go beyond the scope of what Congress intended. But, Bob, there's a very important doctrine called deference. And basically, going back to a 1986 case by the Supreme Court called Chevron, federal courts and the IRS must respect any sort of regulation issued by the agency responsible for administering that law. So with respect to tax matters, it's the Treasury Department. And under Section 2704B, the Congress basically said to the Treasury, in other words, the IRS, you can issue any regulations you want. Now, there is a bit of history, legislative history, which says we're not trying to take away normal discounts like minority discounts. And some will rigorously argue that in light of that statement in the legislative history, you just can't issue these regulations. They've just gone too far because they do take away minority discounts. However, Bob, on the other side, that explicit grant of authority may override that kind of a general statement in the legislative history. There will be a tax. But, Bob, in my judgment, if you are advising clients to go forward with a plan based on the fact that we know it's going to be struck down, that not only is bad advice, it is reckless advice. If you want to do something, and many of the practitioners on this phone will want to do something very beneficial for their clients, you really need to act by the end of this year or maybe in the first few days of January. 
There's going to be a hearing held on December 1st about these proposed regulations. I promise you there will be many comments by groups like the AICPA, the American Bar Association, the American College of Trusts and Estates Council, which I know will be thoughtful. And it probably will take the Treasury some time to really absorb that and come out with the regulations in final form. But the Treasury has announced that those final regulations will be effective as early as 30 days after they're put out there. So with a hearing on December 1st and possibly by the end of January coming out with proposed regs, these would be effective at the end of February or the beginning of March. I don't know that it will happen that fast, and I and others will certainly urge certain changes. Indeed, because I knew these regulations were being drafted, I urged the Treasury to accept closely held active businesses, the type that you get deferral payment of estate tax relief under Section 6166. And indeed, there's a little bitty nod in favor of those kind of businesses, but it, it, it's just a rounding thing. It's not a big deal. I told them, exempt those. I said, if you won't just exempt them, at least give taxpayers an opportunity to prove that there is family disharmony. So if my brother Doug and I each own 40% of a business, Bob, and you own the other 20% that's an active business, Doug and I may be fighting. And maybe his family, when I die, won't help my family or the reverse. And I think that they have to provide taxpayers with an opportunity to come in and prove that it is impossible in the real world to get a proportionate part of the net value of the entire enterprise. Now, we won't do that with respect to non-active businesses like a traditional family marketable securities or maybe just, you know, just land or, or even a building that's under a triple net lease or something like that. But for real active businesses, a manufacturing company or something like that, I think they really have to say, we're not going to stick you by pay paying a, you know, an estate tax or a gift tax or a generation skipping transfer tax on a value which, as a practical matter, is impossible for your family to receive. So, Jonathan, just to be clear, this version of the regulation of the proposed regulations would apply to certainly to a securities partnership, certainly to real estate, and my reading of the current version is it's also going to apply, just like you just said, to actual trades or businesses. The guy that owns a manufacturing company that employs 1,500 people, that business will be impacted by this too. That's correct, Bob. And one of the things to remember in defining what a controlled enterprise is, you look at the ownership not just of you and your immediate family, you and your kids and stuff, but you look at your ancestors, uh, your descendants, people they're married to, your spouse, and also basically your brothers and sisters and their descendants as well. Some provisions of Chapter 14, like Section 2702, dealing with grats, where you can't do a grit if you do it for a family member, exclude nieces and nephews, for example. But under Section 2704, if you and your nephew or niece have control of that, determining that control, they look basically at state law. If you have special provisions in there that, well, it takes 99% to do it, it's not going to work anymore. So, But, Bob, you're, you're absolutely correct. And there's one other thing. If it is a limited partnership, and I'm going to suggest the equivalent in an LLC, a limited liability company, if you are or own a piece of the general partner, you're deemed to have control. So if uh, I'm in a partnership with outsiders, 
but I am the general partner or one of the general partners or own uh, the LLC which owns the general partnership interest and therefore control, it's deemed to be a family enterprise. So even, for example, let's say, Bob, you have someone who runs a hedge fund, and she is maybe has a, a, a modest equity interest, maybe 5%. She and her family only own 5%, but she's the general partner or owns an interest in an LLC that is the general partner, then you're going to have that to be in a controlled enterprise. And this may go very, very far on doing planning for people who are hedge fund managers who have carried interest and other interests in the enterprise. So it's going to have an enormous impact with respect to them as well. These regulations are extremely broad. Now, let me mention one thing. Bob, I got a private letter ruling. It's the only one gotten in the 1990s where the IRS agreed that you would not be deemed to have an interest as a general partner if you were a non-controlling shareholder in a corporation that was the general partner. I represented a family that operated its company and was an active business as a limited partnership. The general partner was a corporation, this is before the days of LLCs, in order to prevent personal liability. And one of the family members owned a minority interest in the corporation, which happened to be an S corporation. And I got the IRS to rule that because he was not a general partner and because the general partner was not a partnership but a corporation and because he was a minority shareholder in the corporation, that he didn't have control. I would guess that unless the regulations change that result, you probably could use that. But it was extremely difficult to get from the service. It did not want to issue it, even though it told me, yes, you're right, Jonathan, but we don't want to issue this because it will set forth a pattern that other people will abuse. But eventually they did issue the ruling, and there's been nothing in there that changed. Also keep in mind that private letter rulings, and there's only one, and it's now 20 years old, cannot be cited or used as precedent. So, Jonathan, we have this window of opportunity before the regs are finalized. So we know clearly we have to December 1st, and the Treasury will take some time after that. Theoretically, it could be a week, more likely much longer, to issue the final regulations. And then we have 30 days after those regs are issued. The Treasury has told us that they will not be effective no earlier than 30 days after the final regs are put out. So that means, Bob, we have very earliest the beginning of January. So let's just start here. We'll start from where we're standing today. What should be done? I mean, so there's thousands of lawyers and CPAs that will, insurance advisors, financial planners that will hear this tape, and they're, they're wondering, what do I do now? Is it fair to say the rules that exists today through when these regs are finalized are the rules we've been working with for the last 10 or 15 years? They are, Bob. And for example, if you have a client who has a limited partnership, I would suggest you consider somehow doing a transfer, maybe an installment sale to a grantor trust. By the way, a lot of the people on the phone use these so-called beneficiary defective trusts, which is a concept I developed. However, many promoters do it in a way that is, to me, reckless. What you want to do is to take a look at the private letter ruling I got from the IRS, which is the safe way to maintain that beneficiary defective trust or Section 678 status. And that, Bob, is private letter ruling 2009 49012. 
if you represent someone who is a closely held business owner, that person is going to have to think about whether or not they want to make transfers in order to garner a minority discount rather than waiting to see. Some people won't do it because everybody in the world, Bob, and I'm in this group, cares more about himself or herself than all the members of their family. But if you want your clients to be able to protect the wealth that they've built based upon the risks that they've been willing to take in the marketplace, I think you should to contact your clients. By the way, Bob, I'm gonna, I can't do everybody, but either through you or directly contacting me, if you represent wealthy families and you want my guidance around or in compliance with these rules, please contact you or me, Bob. I want to add one other thing that's actually a giveaway by the Treasury. As we know, the vast majority of people will never fall under the federal estate tax or gift tax system or the generation skipping transfer tax system. So if you have a client who's married and she and her husband have less than $11 million, they're never going to be caught by the estate tax system. Again, fully valuing the assets. But under these rules, they're going to get a higher value for their interests than they would under current law. So you represent a closely held business owner. Uh, she and her husband, say, own 80% of the stock. And, you know, if they make gifts to their kids, uh, that's going to be at a higher value. But when they die, you're not going to be taking into account the normal minority or lack of control discounts. So their bases for income tax purposes will actually be higher. So this could be welcome news for those, uh, unlike you, Bob, who are willing to represent people who aren't super rich. I know you, Bob, they've got to have $100 million or more before you'll even take their call. But for the rest of us in this world who have to deal with the little people, the little people may get a real benefit from this because the boost in the basis when they die or make transfers from a trust that's not exempt from generations giving transfer tax. And indeed, Bob, you can argue, even though you weren't thinking about using a trust, why not use a trust so when the taxable termination occurs and a change of basis happens, you'll get a higher basis than the real value of what's there. And you may still be, you know, exempt from the tax for a variety of reasons. So that's something important to think about, Bob in planning for the future. But right now, as you've indicated, Bob, the key is focusing on what your clients should do now to avoid the impact of these regulations if they become final. We don't know that they'll become final in their current form. I think they put in a tremendous time and effort. They were exceptionally careful and clever in drafting these. It's going to be very difficult to avoid, avoid these. I think people will try to come up with a scheme, so to speak, or arrangements would try to avoid it, but it's a very, very high hurdle to leap over. Jonathan, in the next three or four months, obviously there'll be many transfers. A portion of the regulations, specifically under 2704A, have this three-year rule. Basically, it says if I make a gift and I die within three years, the valuation adjustments associated with that gift are going to come back into my estate as a phantom asset. Let's be specific here. What if I make the gift today, the regulations come out in, say, February, and I die next summer after the regs have been out? Do you believe under the current version of the regulations that that the transfer, the pre-regulatory transfer, 
would boomerang back into my estate, or do you think that should we be able to thread the needle on that? Bob, I hope we can thread the needle on that, but as you indicate, it's not entirely clear. But the one thing people need to do to avoid that rule, uh, but also, you know, this three-year rule, you make a transfer now, you die within three years, or you do it next year and you die within three years, the value of those transfers is basically that used discount is going to be taken away when you die. It's a transfer deemed to occur at your death. So people need to start thinking about doing those transfers now. And that's important, Bob, but the big Megillah is 2704B, those regulations, the 25.2704-3 proposed regulations. So, Jonathan, let's talk about that for a second. Once we are beyond when the regs are finalized, do the regulations that basically flush out 2704A really have any teeth, or does B, is B just so impactful that it totally overcomes anything A is trying to accomplish? Bob, I think that what you've said is correct. And indeed, when I first read the new or the amendments that would occur under 2704A, I said, well, okay, I can do this more than three years before I die. Maybe it's not so bad. It doesn't apply to lifetime gifts per se. I'm, I'm fine. But then when you study the 2704B regs, these new proposed regulations, you realize that the kind of exceptions in A are swallowed by B. And that's going to make planning very, very tough. There is a distinction, however. A applies only to the loss of liquidation or voting rights. B basically says everybody has a put right exercisable within six months if the family controls the enterprise. So if, if I currently own a 10% interest and my brothers own 90%, whatever, and I die, my 10% is going to be valued under these 2704B proposed regulations as though I had or my family, the inheritors, have an absolute right to put the interest back to the enterprise, even though it's an operating business, at 10% of the value of the entire enterprise. So, theoretically, maybe if we put 20 appraisers in a room, they would tell us that the discount under A might still be, call it 5 to 10% or 5 to 15%, but there'd be no discount remaining under B. Is that fair? Bob, that's fair, except I think that most appraisers, in my experience, are going to, when you're dealing with a minority interest in a business, under 2704A, you know, you're going to get a discount. You know, low side, the IRS argues for 20%. High side, taxpayers argue for 50 And in my experience, somewhere between 30 and 40% is kind of the traditional minority discount. And that's based upon real-world events. And, Bob, we know if you have a minority interest in a closely held business, you can't control anything. And unless that enterprise is distributed or you have an S-Corp or a partnership which mandates distributions each year, as a practical matter, it really can't be sold for very much. I've been involved with closely held businesses where they've tried to get another family to come in, even though they may be good friends, and invest in that company. And the family that's being asked to come in says, hey, wait a minute, 
We've got to have a right to be put out, to be bought back with a profit if you haven't gone public within four or five years, if you haven't made massive distributions, or we'd have a right to split up part of the business. In the real world, nobody is going to put herself in a minority position in a closely held business unless there's some special arrangement. And just because you've been good friends doesn't mean you're going to do it where you have significant amounts involved. But all that stuff, Bob, under 2704B is gone like the wind. So, Jonathan, in the near term, we do gifts, we do idget sales, we do grats, the things we've used for years. Now, let's focus in on one final question. On the grat, let's say I do a grat today, and the economic value of something, if you liquidated it and completely went to cash, is $100. We put it in that grat at a value of 65. The IRS issues these regulations before the first grat payment is due back to the grantor. How do you value the property in the grat post-regulation? Bob, that's a very interesting question. I don't know whether or not they would value it at the 65 or 100. The question is, is a payment coming from a grat under the estate, gift, or generation-skipping transfer tax provisions. Arguably, it is, which means that the grad payments made, once these regs become final, if they're final in their, in their current form, would mean you have to use the value of 100. However, it's the value going in that counts, so this could be beneficial. For example, I get the assets in at a value of 65, and the payments, therefore, are going to be based upon a value of 65. And let's make it simple. Let's say I direct that trust to pay me something in the neighborhood of $33 the first year and $33 the second year, which essentially will absorb the entire $65 value put in the trust. But in paying me back, if we can use these rules, in the first year, if the assets haven't grown in value, rather than giving me 50 or 51% of them, they'd only have to give me... 33%, and then another 33%, which means even though there was no change in valuation whatsoever, you would be able to have at least a third of it remain in the grant after the two payments are made, even though the value of what you contributed in the real world hadn't changed. That may become a good technique to consider, Bob, over the next three or four months. That's very insightful. You've done an incredible job today of laying out a subject that's now four days old. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. On behalf of Lineberg Information Services, this has been Bob Keebler with Attorney Jonathan Blockmacher and the proposed 2704 regulations. Thank you for joining us today.